Hey everyone, I'm Louie. And I'm Valerie, and this is Musical Tangents. Where we just talk different things about music. Welcome! Um, but the next topic that I wanted to talk about then okay. was some famous cases that we know of musicians struggling with this constant stressful environment of having to perform. Mm -hmm. So first one is a rather famous one. I think anyway, um, is Rachmaninoff. Mm -hmm. So uh, a Russian composer uh, around the romantic period. Late romantic. romantic. I mean, he's he's post-romantic, technically speaking, because he was living after Tchaikovsky. So, like, he was born in, like, 1874 or something like that. Anyway, so he's technically late romantic. And Valerie's looking up. (laughs) I think it was 1874. 1873. Okay, I was off by a year. He died in 1943. Yeah, he died at, like, 70. Like, exactly 70 years old. Yeah. I only know that because Tchaikovsky technically heard the famous C-sharp minor prelude oh. of Rachmaninoff. I, it's always fascinating how these composers, we lives intermingle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's always mm-hmm. the fascinating part for me. Anyway, so Rachmaninoff is a famous, you know, we're just going to call him romantic composer. He was the last romantic. <laughs> okay. Well, he wasn't, but, you know. He was a composer and he was a virtuoso pianist and he was also a conductor. So he did he did all three. I mean, you know, he was he was kind of like an overachiever and he was known to have really big hands. I think that's what a lot of people actually know Rachmaninoff for is that he could apparently just sit down. And, you know, for those of you who don't play piano often, try this. Try playing a middle C and then extend to the octave C and then and then try to play G. Right? That's I physically could not do that. <laughs> I don't think I can do that either. I mean You'd have to break my hand. Yeah, I can I can do C skin. to F actually. That's I, impressive. I've, I've actually stretched my hands that far. I but the biggest I can go is an octave. I cannot You can't my, do ninth. No. Uh if I'm I like think on you the can very, do ninth. I could technically do a ninth, but it's uncomfortable. It's, it's not a comfortable or playable range. Yeah. So Rachmaninoff's hands, you know, just point is Rachmaninoff's hands are really big or were big because he's dead. Um, <laughs> okay. okay, this is getting nowhere. Uh, my point to that was Rachmaninoff was known to, uh, to have composed the first symphony and his first symphony was premiered horribly was performed horribly and it got so many criticisms like harsh mean criticisms from the critics at the time so that put him into almost like a hiatus point or period of comp- composition mm-hmm. he couldn't compose for if i remember correctly like four or five years he was in complete you know disarray he was just not only was he disappointed that his first symphony wasn't performed well Mm -hmm. but he just felt so much you know like he felt so much hate from coming from the critics 
they were saying that, you know, ah, this is an amateur composition, you know, he shouldn't be composing, he's better off as a pianist, and all of these kind of mean things as a composer to, for a composer to hear. He goes into a deep depression period, and then he goes through some of the therapies, and then as a result of therapy, him overcoming a little bit of depression essentially led him to compose Piano Concerto Number no. 2. What's actually interesting is this is some one pianist's interpretation. You know how like Piano Concerto Number no. 2, by the way, if you don't know the piece, I think you should go listen to it. I, there are many great performances, including a performance by Rachmaninoff himself. Oh, no, Rachmaninoff oh, himself also recorded it. Uh, I didn't. Okay. Who are you saying? I've only I've listened to the Horowitz recording. That's third one. Oh, that's the third. My bad. <laughs> We're gonna delete this out. Delete that portion. No, no, no. I'm not deleting this out. <laughs> ah! Now you have to. <laughs> no. Okay. So Rachmaninoff famously recorded his second piano concerto. If you listen to it carefully, it starts out with the chords, right? And some some pianists have said this is Rachmaninoff warming up with the piano because mm-hmm. piano doesn't have the main theme in the beginning. It's the orchestra. Da, 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 da. That's played by orchestra and piano does follow it, but piano is not the main instrument. That's playing the theme. It's mainly doing the arpeggio up and down the keyboard. And somebody said, this is Rachmaninoff just warming up because he was a nervous person as a, mm-hmm. as a performer. Nonetheless, he still played really, really well, obviously. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at his pieces, I mean, come on now. But nonetheless, he still struggled with it. So he, you can see from some of his pieces that he doesn't start out like super crazy. He doesn't just start with it. He mm-hmm. always has a almost like a figure that's like, "Oh, I think I can play." This kind of like, you know, like Chopin etude, the winter storm, mm-hmm. the A minor one, you know, da da da, da and everyone looks at it. "Oh yeah, I can play this Chopin." And yeah. then they get to the second page and, you know, falls apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like that. Like Rachmaninoff's pieces begin very, you know, not easy, not mm-hmm. easy, easy, but like it's relatively easier than what's about to come. So he's like warming up. And mm-hmm. just like that, I think it really is interesting because in general, a lot of stories also start to warm up and then there hits the climax. So, mm-hmm. you know. That's one famous case of musician overcoming their mental health and they wrote, you know, beautiful music like that. So, you know, I don't know. That's just a kind of like a trivia question, I guess. You know, for those of you who are like, oh, I want to do trivia questions related to classical music. Who was the composer who overcame depression and wrote the second concerto, which was a success. That would be Ramanov. But I think that's really interesting to me because a lot of times, you know, as a composer, there are times that's really, really difficult. And I don't compose. I can't compose in that period when I'm really like, 
going through a lot of you know just kind of when you're lost in thoughts i guess mm-hmm. let's put it that way i don't think you know like i don't think i'm not i'm always like that depressed but you know everyone has a mood and you know when you're not in the mood you can't necessarily push yourself beyond the limit that you would normally yeah. do i mean i think it's different for other people you could also talk about beethoven and him coming to grips with um losing his hearing um and some people kind of believe that the symphony number three is his piece showing i'm overcoming you know (laughs) my ailment with not being like losing my hearing i think it's still interesting though because he writes that and around the same time he's also writing you know a passionata and things like that Mm -hmm. were some people have assumed that he was suicidal and, you know, so... Yeah, I mean, some of his letters, um, I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but I think it's the Halt Guide Testament. Have you read that? No, I don't think so. It was a letter he wrote to his, um, I believe, brother, but never he never sent it. And it was essentially, in this letter, um, I can give you the source if we need to cite this later, but... Um, He's essentially writing that, like, music saved his life. If it was not for music, and with his, um, he knew that his hearing was going, he was like, I, I, I was suicidal, but music saved me. Mm-hmm. And if it was not for music, I would not keep going. He never sent this letter, um, but historians found it, and they kind of tie it to symphony number three and because the symphony number three was technically written to napoleon yes but then political stuff happened and he was like um this is not for you napoleon (laughs) and well and that's actually how uh sonata 26 uh the e flat uh major i think it's less less adieu it's it i'm yeah not i don't speak french so anyway but it's like it's like written in french and it's his goodbye to Nap- napoleon mm. so like you know like how he da, 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 and then originally yeah. everyone expects him to play e flat major because it's an e flat major but when the bass is played we clearly find out that it's c minor so it's you know this tragic goodbye i don't want to see you ever again so yeah. you know like because in german apparently Avirazen, which a lot of people relate to goodbye, apparently originally means until I see you again. And he didn't write that. He wrote it in French, les adieux, which means mm. just goodbye. Yeah. I don't want to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Um, but back to the symphony number three, like I was saying, just um, some people go through a hard time and compose and some people can't compose until they were are out of that difficult time so i think it's interesting in that it's every there's not a set way that's true that's everybody uses music to help them in different ways well i mean you know it depends on Mm -hmm. as i've said multiple times it depends on your personality Mm -hmm. and the way you were developed i think that often isn't talked about actually a lot like not in the sense that you know like freudian or jungian way 
I'm not talking about development in that sense, but like just the way that you were taught when you were growing up. You know, your parents probably taught you different ways to overcome difficult times compared to、mm-hmm. my parents. You know,、yeah. and whether that worked for you or not, it doesn't matter. Like it's still、mm-hmm. part of you. So I think that also has a huge, like it has a huge part in it.、Um, so yeah, I think music and mental health is very interesting. You know, it's also interesting. That when we hear about these music, right, whether we know the backstory or not, helps us feel better somehow. Because、mm-hmm. you know, classical music has this notion a lot, and and I don't know if you would agree with me on this. None of the classical music is just tragedy, 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 and ends with tragedy. A lot of classical music pieces that you might hear on radio, CD, streaming services, they often Start out, and then you know climax might be a little tragic, little com- conflicts just arising, and then you know it kind of gets tense. But the end is always, most of the time in my experience, it has some kind of hopeful notion. You know, it's like some people say darkness to light. You know,、mm-hmm. some people say whatever, but you know, it just has that. There is always a tomorrow kind of notion, so I think that's always, you know, that has always helped people who might be going through difficult times of their own, and they can't seem to motivate to do anything. But then they hear the music, and you know, music makes them feel better. Yeah. So I think music and mental health is also related in that sense.、Um, Another case that I also wanted to talk about was Schumann.、Mm-hmm. So, contrary to what a lot of historians have believed, and I think it's famously been said, Schumann had like a bipolar depression, and you know, almost like schizophrenic, depressive symptoms. I don't think that's proven. Like, well, I mean, we can't prove it, but. No, not really. I mean, you know, it, it's so it's hard to. It's all open to interpretation. It's so hard to diagnose a, a mental mental health condition anyway. So、yeah. without having to hear from him as a first source, you know, we we will never know.、Mm-hmm. But one thing that is for sure is that. Do you, actually do you want to? I don't know if you've talked about this in music history classes or not. I've always been fascinated with Brahms. Clara Schumann and Robert Schumann's relationship, because Robert Schumann, from my understanding, liked Brahms and the way Brahms composed, and he even praised Brahms as he's the hope for German music ever since Beethoven or Beethoven's death. Right? So, I mean, clearly he liked the man enough, right? But there's also been this kind of. Almost like a rumor, or I don't want to say conspiracy theory because it, I don't think it impacts any other people. <laughs> But、no. people who are like, no, Brahms and Clara Schumann had an affair, and you know those kinds of stories. So I don't know. Do you have any insights to that? Um, I honestly haven't done a whole lot of research into the p- possible love triangle that was, <laughs> um, in academia. We're not really 
looking at that a whole lot because we have to spend a lot of time analyzing the music. But I mean, if you look at something like Brahms themes and variations that he wrote for Clara, you could e- easily interpret the piece to be a love song yeah. to Clara. So, I mean, if you're looking into the music and in- interpret it that way, you could you could say yes. But again, I mean, we don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, like, I think, you know, the story is about, of course, people, Schumann being suicidal. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Schumann jumped into the river and, you know, he was saved by the fishermen at the river and Brahms's piano concerto number one, second movement being very religioso kind of theme that was dedicated supposedly to Schumann. You know, like nobody knows. But one thing that I do know is that Schumann, I believe, died in mental institution. So clearly something was happening to Robert Schumann. And again, don't quote me on this, anybody who's listening to this. But I believe when Schumann died, they did like his, um, what's, what's that called? Uh, autopsy mm-hmm. and some like his brain was not the size that it was supposed to have been like it shrunk apparently so who knows maybe you know if if i don't know if that's true but if that were true i think that explains more about the symptoms that he was experiencing not necessarily to do with you know all of the other things happening. Well, did they have enough technology back then to know how big a brain was supposed to be? Who knows? I don't know. Lots of questions. Well, I, have. I will dig deeper into this on my own. Yeah, because now I'm curious. Because I mean, Schumann. Schumann's a little bit of a mystery. I don't really fully know. He died in like 1854, so you could definitely argue that there wasn't enough technology to conclude that. I think that's a Mm -hmm. legitimate argument. But at the same time, I just don't think he... I think he was a wildly imaginative person. So some of the things, some of the ways that he described might not have been direct and straightforward. You know, if somebody writes in the diary at the time, I feel as if somebody a a spirit is choking the soul out of my heart we don't know if that's actually you know based on actually what they perceive as pain or what they perceive you know we don't know i mean you know these people were we don't know how they spoke we don't know how they like phrased things we have our own like colloquial language nowadays that might not mm-hmm. mean entirely what it was meaning in like 10 years ago. So that's one of the reasons why Schumann's, I think, interesting case. But even for him, music was the source for him to essentially communicate his emotion to Clara Schumann. And Clara, it's it's being discovered because I feel like I don't think we discovered everything that she's written. But she no, was a composer. I mean, she so. she has a symphony, or supposedly wrote a symphony, but we don't have like all of it. So uh, it's like, like part part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She has like a incomplete symphony. I did a little bit of research on her. Clara um, Schumann probably wrote a lot of music back to Robert Schumann. 
Uh, I'm gonna say n- no. You don't think so? No, because that sounds like um, like not everything was about him. Like that might not. No, sound no, nice, no, no. I'm I'm like, saying I'm saying most of the compositions that we hear about Schumann is not for anybody else but for Clara. Okay. Oh, I see. Uh, what that's you're what saying. I mean. Okay, so I'm not saying that Clara Schumann just wrote music like submissively to Robert. Okay. It it was their way of expressing love for one another. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm well, I mean, being a female composer and performer at that time wasn't easy. Like you could, which is still um, funny though, because I I think she was one of the greatest pianists at the time. She was, but and she, if I remember correctly, again, people always argue back and forth about this with me. I don't think Liszt was the first ever pianist who ever performed with everything memorized. I think it was actually Clara Schumann yeah, who I started mean, that tradition. <laughs> and I mean, you can also look at other female composers of the time, like Fanny Mendelssohn, who were strongly discouraged to perform to compose and a lot of their works are lost um, yeah yeah because of that so i i don't know i don't think we can objectively look at all of claire's works because we don't we i I, from a historical lens i don't think we have enough evidence to support anything Mm -hmm. yeah so schumann's sort of a mystery Rachmaninoff. Both of them. Yeah. <laughs> Both the Schumanns. Yeah, we don't know what they thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Rachmaninoff is pretty much known. Mm-hmm. The next case that I wanted to touch upon is Ravel. So Ravel is interesting. Now, you told me that you don't necessarily know a lot about Ravel, right? No, not or, about or... this case that you're That's true. going to bring. I. Of course, looked at his music, but I've not dived into his personal life. Maurice Ravel was very secretive person, so he a lot of his personal life is like we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, some speculated that he uh, some sp- some sp- tried to speculate his love life as well when he mm-hmm. was still like alive, but like. They couldn't find anything about him. So he was that secretive. Um, But a man of style in France and, you know, allegedly, uh, well, not allegedly, it's a known fact. Um, He was a veteran of World War One. So, you know, he's seen some interesting things during the battlefield. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he even dedicated a lot of his later works Two different friends and, you know, uh, what do you call them? Uh, like the fellow soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, who passed away during the war and things like that. So, like, okay. a lot of his works have been dedicated to people who either lost, you know, like the famous story of mm-hmm. his left-hand piano concerto was dedicated to Paul Wittgenstein, who was a German soldier, um, or not German soldier, but he lost his right arm Mm -hmm. during the war, and he only had left hand, but he was a pianist. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you see a lot of left-hand compositions, or left-hand only compositions, it usually comes around that time, (laughs) and it's because of that one person. 
And, uh, but allegedly, Paul Wittgenstein was not a very good person. Anyway, <laughs> all, a lot of side, a lot of tangential Back to uh, Ravel. So Ravel, after the war, gets in a car crash and he injures his head. Ever since then, a lot of people noted that Ravel often was just kind of like stunned. He was just like, he didn't really, he didn't seem like he was thinking anything, but he was just looking out into the distance. He seemed more lost and confused than usual to such a degree that he could hear music and he could still, you know, hear original ideas of music, but he can compose after that. Turns out, I think he has a neurological condition. I don't know what it was exactly. So, for those of you who are interested in diving into that, you can more you are more than welcome to do that. But Ravel apparently had a neurological condition where he couldn't physically, like, transfer one thought to an execution of actually writing stuff down. So, anyway, therefore. Around that time was one of his last compositions and arguably more popular work, more well-known work of his, which is Bolero. If you know Bolero, it's an orchestral symphonic poem, I guess. Mm -hmm. Originally, he was commissioned a ballet, apparently, and he was going to use that theme as one of the pieces in the ballet. Mm. But he just... You know, he could not having to be able to compose thoroughly as he usually did. Um, he just decided to basically use that theme and just make a symphonic poem. So he wrote Bolero. And if you listen to Bolero carefully, it has like a theme and it's repeated by multiple in, mu- multiple soloists in the orchestra until orchestra joins and then, you know. It ends on a very, I will say, violent ending. Mm -hmm. And the way a lot of people usually perceive the piece is like, oh, it's a little cute piece, right? Because, you know, it sounds like just like a child's play. Like, a lot of people actually used it in a more funnier context with the music. Now, I didn't know this. Until much later. But during the premiere of Bolero, when Ravel was not actually in attendance, one older woman screamed crazy, crazy and walked out of the theater during the premiere. And having heard that story, Ravel allegedly said, well, she's the only person who understood my music. So... There was this gear, almost like Mm -hmm. a machine-like beat and same theme over and over again. And in a way, it portrays his inability to develop an idea into a fuller-scale work. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of analogy that we could come up with that kind of explains what Ravel might have been feeling or going through at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. With that, I want to kind of end the podcast like this. So, this is not an easy question, and I do remember hearing this question at first. Does creativity 
depend on or no, no, that was not the question. The question was, does depression lead people to be more creative? And one thing that I want to tell people, because I think there is that notion going around that a lot of creative people are more emotionally empathetic. Therefore, mm-hmm. they're more susceptible to having more emotional, psychological conditions that they didn't anticipate. I want to tell this to people. Do not, please do not think that you being in depression is automatically going to make you creative. That is not... One reason why I don't want people to believe that is because, one, there's not enough evidence that basically establishes the causal relationship correlation does not mean causal relationship you know like every every statistics professors and teachers in the world you know there might be some correlation that people become more creative as they are more susceptible to depression and things like that but what the studies forget to or people forget to also acknowledge is that if you are susceptible to mental health conditions that generally means you're susceptible to having a wide range a wide array of emotional aspects you're just more susceptible to feel various emotions therefore that's what's more needed like you understanding different emotional context and intricacy of what other people might be going through but just because you know historical figures like Rachmaninoff Beethoven were suicidal around the time that they wrote masterpieces doesn't mean that you have to be suicidal to write masterpieces. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like that's the danger that I see oftentimes is that not every creative person is torture soul. And I don't want people to romanticize that having some sort of mental health condition is more going to be more helpful for their pieces to become better. That's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to talk about the performance anxiety because it's it can be very detrimental. It can be very harmful. So with that being said, approach with caution. I think if you want to be creative, that's great. But I really do see that a lot. Is that, you know, some people who kind of want to believe that, oh, you know, if I have anxiety, if I have this, then I'm going to be more creative. It's the other way around. When you're creative, you just automatically are exposed to wide array of emotions. So that's what I did. That's what I did want to tell people before ending the podcast, because that's always been my fear and concern. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can say having dealt with those things, getting out of them, I feel like I'm more creative than I was. Than you were in it. Than when I was in it. Yeah. Yeah. So not recommended. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Get help if you need it. Absolutely. Yeah. You you need to ask for help. No one's going to just be able to read your mind and saying oh this person needs help (laughs) but 
with that being said, we're going to return with another topic next time. Ooh, glad to be back, guys. <laughs>